On March 29, 1982, the 54th Academy Awards were held, but if you glanced at the nominees, you might mistake it for the 15th, or at least the 30th. Actors that topped marquees during the inception of film to those who became iconic during the more recent, but still decidedly removed, golden era of cinema were nominated next to the actors who would go on to define this new generation of filmmaking. And while the torch would still be passed, in this instance, the old-timers swept the show. Veteran London stage actor John Gilgood took home the Best Supporting Oscar over Jack Nicholson. Katherine Hepburn triumphed over Diane Keaton and Meryl Streep to take home her fourth Oscar 48 years after her first. But it was the Best Actor race that really pitted iconic actor against iconic actor. Paul Newman versus Burt Lancaster versus Warren Beatty versus Henry Fonda. And it was Fonda who won the prize on only his second nomination 41 years after his first. But in true passing of the torch fashion, it wasn't Henry who took the stage to accept this long overdue honor, but his daughter Jane, already well on her way towards her own iconic status. Hello, and welcome to For Your Reconsideration, the podcast where we re-examine best picture races of decades past and determine if the Academy got it right. I'm Devin. And I'm Kyle. And this week, we are talking about the 54th Academy Awards held in 1982, honoring the best films of 1981. So let's discuss what was going on in the, in the country in 1981, shall we? I'm excited. Okay. On January 20th, Ronald Reagan was sworn in as the 40th president of the United States. And minutes later, the Iran, Iran released the 52 Americans held for 444 days, ending the Iran hostage crisis. Mm. On March 6th, after 19 years hosting the CBS Evening News, Walter Cronkite signed off for the last time. End of an era. Uh, on March 30th, President Ronald Reagan was shot in the chest outside a Washington, D.C. hotel by John Hinckley Jr. This we discussed actually in the very first For Your Reconsideration episode because it happened the day that the Oscars were supposed to happen that year as they had to delay the 53rd Academy Awards by one day until it was it was pretty sure that Reagan was going to be all right, which he was. So, yay. <laughs> uh, in June... The United States entered a severe early 1980s recession exactly a year after the more minor 1980 recession ended. The unemployment rate was 7.2%. On June 5th, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report that five homosexual men in Los Angeles have a rare form of pneumonia seen only in patients with weakened immune systems, Damn. which were the first recognized cases of AIDS. Saw where that was going. Yeah. On August 1st, MTV launched on cable television in the United States. The dawn of the music video era. Wow. And on September 25th, Sandra Day O'Connor took her seat as the first female justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. <laughs> I ended on a happy note. Yes, you did. Well, MTV was happy, too. Depending on, I guess, how you feel about MTV. I don't know. Video killed the radio star. Yeah, and then streaming killed the video star. And now, you know, aliens are going to kill streaming. Who knows? What? Everything's going to get gonna killed. We're going to kill streaming. Everybody dies. Everything dies. And everything is new again. Yeah. It's the well. cycle of life. Okay. Wow. <laughs> what a good note. Maybe we should just stick to talking about movies. Okay, well, then let me tell you about 1981 and film history. Oh, cool. Okay, on January 19th, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, a.k.a. MGM, acquired uh, United Artists after United Artists was humiliated by the astronomical losses on your words? Heaven's Gate. No. <laughs> okay, so you're just plagiarizing. Yeah. Okay. It's the American way, Kyle. Well, in the audiobook of Wikipedia, yeah, <laughs> I'm your I'm just reading Wikipedia Kyle. to people. <laughs> And they love it. Anyway, Heaven's Gate was a huge failure. <laughs> United Artists, which is one of the original studios, was basically like underwater in MGM. Wait, Heaven's them. Gate? This this year was Heaven's Gate? Well, the year before, because this in January, MGM bought. Oh, yeah, yeah. Gotcha, so Heaven's gotcha, Gate gotcha. was the year before. Um, and on November 29th, off 
Santa Catalina Island, 43-year-old actress Natalie Wood drowned during a boating incident, which is mm. technically still open for investigation. They, like, reopened yeah. it a couple years ago. Yeah. But, you know, we're never going to know what happened there. So. Some notable film debuts in 1981. Ben Affleck. No. That's what Wikipedia told me. <laughs> in the dark end of the you street. Can't tell people that you get your resources from Wikipedia. Like I was making a joke, and then you just agreed. <laughs> That's where I get it. Okay. Mm-hmm. He what did I say? Ben Affleck, nineteen eighty-one. What happened? He was in his first movie. What was he doing? The dark end of the street. I don't know. That's I'm just. That's all the information I have about it. <laughs> people should Google it if they want to know more. He's probably like a kid. What <laughs> <laughs> a zoom. I'm just basing off what I know about his age now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Safe assumption. Other other notable film debuts. (laughs) Kevin Costner, Tom Cruise, Jeff Daniels, Sean Penn, and Kathleen Turner. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. People I've heard of. Good. Do you want to know what the top 10 movies in 1981 were? Yes. Let's get to it. Okay. Number 10 was Time Bandits. Number nine, The Four Seasons. Eight, For Your Eyes Only. Number seven, Academy Award winning Chariots of Fire. Number six, The Cannonball Run. (laughs) Five, Stripes. Oh, yes. Four, Arthur. Three, Superman 2. Two on Golden Pond and number one, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So let's get into some fun facts about the 54th Academy Awards, shall we? Let's do it, Devin. Okay. So Chariots of Fire, as I mentioned, did win Best Picture, but it was a surprise winner because Reds led with 12 nominations and it was assumed that that would win Best Picture, especially after Warren Beatty won for Best Director during the ceremony. Um, but Chariots won and became the first British film in 13 years to win Best Picture. What was the film before that? Don't know. Mm. Wasn't in the Wikipedia article. No. <laughs> uh, like I alluded to in the intro hey, Why to listen episode, to our show when you could just look at Wikipedia? Because I had a fun It wouldn't take an hour it. and a half. <laughs> Stop it. This is the fun part. Fun facts. Fun facts. Yes. As I was saying, as I alluded to in the (laughs) intro, at 76 years of age, Henry Fonda became the oldest winner in the Best Actor category in Academy history, and Catherine Hepburn has the largest gap of any actor between her first and last acting Oscar, which is 48 years between Morning Glory in 1933 and On Golden Pond. Wow. Yes. That's awesome. It's a long career. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long, successful career. Yeah. Although in the middle there, she was labeled box office poison and has rebuilt her entire career. Wow. Mm-hmm. Which we also talked about because her comeback film was. Uh, Which was what? Was what? What's the one we watched last season with her and Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant? Philadelphia, Philadelphia story. story. That was her big comeback movie that Howard Hughes oh, bought okay. for her. Gotcha. Okay. This year's nominations also marked the second time after 1967 that three different films were nominated in the Big Five Academy Awards, which I'm assuming my listeners know, but just in case you don't, that's Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, and Screenplay. The three films this year were On Golden Pond, Atlantic City, and Reds. However, none of those won Best Picture. Uh, This also marked the first year that the award for best makeup was presented. The winner was Rick Baker for his work on An American Werewolf in London. Last season, we discussed that the lack of recognition for the makeup in Elephant Man led to the creation of the best makeup category. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Reds was the last film to gain nominations in all four acting categories until Silver Linings Playbook matched that in the 85th Academy Awards in 2013. And Chariots of Fire became the last film to win Best Picture and not win for directing until Driving Miss Daisy in 1990. Those are my facts. Oh, the facts portion of the episode is at a close. Just going to be lies from here on out. (laughs) Just wild conjecture for the rest of the episode. I love that word. That should be your title of your autobiography. Wild conjecture. (laughs) 
That's a the good Devin Mainville story. <laughs> or the Lifetime movie, When You Kill Me. I'm not going to kill you. Well, you have, like, good reasons to. So, like, everyone's behind it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, he deserved it, you know? I mean, usually in Lifetime movies, the husband is, like, abusive, and that's why she, he deserves to get killed. Is that what you're saying about yourself? Well, yeah, but they're trying to, like, get outside the... No, that's terrible. Don't say you're that. You're the one saying this. I was things. just joking, though. You're the one saying that I have reason to murder I you. I know, but I didn't... I wasn't going there. I was going, like, because I'm funnier than you and, like... Okay, that fell flat. Maybe I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we just talk about these movies that were nominated for Best Picture? Okay. First up, the favored but ultimate loser of Reds. <laughs> the ultimate loser. But ultimately a dud, according to the Academy. Reds by Warren Beatty, produced by Paramount. Synopsis. A radical American journalist becomes involved with the communist revolution in Russia and hopes to bring its spirit and idealism to the United States. I say that's about what a third of the movie is about. Sure. But there's two thirds of the movie that that synopsis does not cover. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I think it's always this like the umbrella of the whole thing. It's the overall plot. Sure. I guess. I feel it's, like there's, their love story is the overall plot. Right, but more, that's like so. sprinkled over everything. You know what I mean? It's the reason they meet. It's the reason. It's like how she comes to hate New York. Sure. And you know what I mean? Like how she comes to hate where they go after that because the people who also believe <laughs> that just follow suck, them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the vibe you get. They seem like decent people, but then they're just like kind of crazy. Yeah. I'm not taking a political side here. I'm just talking <laughs> about the movie itself. All right. Well, let me give you a few facts about just kidding wow i had you for a minute though you just fell apart i didn't fall apart (laughs) you're like like, i gotta read all that uninteresting (laughs) stuff again it was super interesting (laughs) it was it was guys let us know how interesting you think the facts are (laughs) unless you find them uninteresting then keep that to yourself it was a five-star review and tell us whether or not you like the facts but five stars regardless yeah five stars regardless Thank you. We just need, actually, you know what? Any stars. We want enough reviews to, <laughs> to have, to have like a decent average out rating. Yes. Do it right now. We'll wait. Please. Oh my God. Thank you so much. Okay. These are awesome. So Rez was written by Warren Beatty and Trevor Griffiths with help from Robert Town, Peter Feibelman, and Elaine May. Beatty first came across the story of John Reed in the mid 60s. And people remember him talking about making a movie based on his life as early as 1966. Beatty finished a first version of the script, then called Comrades in 1969, but the project was stalled. He began collaborating with Griffiths in 1976, and a preliminary draft was completed by 1978. They then spent more than five, almost, I don't know what that sentence is supposed to say, but they spent about five more months tweaking it, and it was subjected to more polishing once production had begun. Ergo, when I said with help from... They sent gotcha. some yeah, yeah. script doctors sure. who cleaned it up a little bit. It's like that they were acknowledged. Yeah. They didn't have to be. That's true. Uh, filming, Beatty began filming the interviews with the witnesses as early as 1971. Wow. So actually a couple of them died before the movie wow, actually yeah. came out. Which those are all real people too, by the way. Yeah. Like, I didn't know that while we were watching it. Oh, I, I kind of assumed. I felt like it was taking that approach. Yeah. Well, I know, but it could have been like. No, I get it. I mean, I don't know. I understand what you're saying. Or just like supposed to be like reading the words of real people or something. But they were actually the real people that knew them. It's um, fairly obvious if you watch the movie, folks. Sorry, I'm just. See, this is why she kills me. <laughs> <laughs> no, continue. I'm sorry. Uh, so, principal photography began in August 1979, and it was supposed to be a 15 to 16 week shoot. It ended up taking a year. Oh my god. <laughs> Filming took place in five different countries. And they used everything shot, let me tell you. <laughs> they didn't, is the scary part. Oh, God. Filming took place in five different countries, and at various points, the crew had to wait for snow to fall in Helsinki and other parts of Finland, which stood in for the Soviet Union, and for rain to stop in Spain. Uh, Beatty was also a fan of numerous takes, up to as many as 100 in at least one instance, and kept the camera rolling in between takes, resulting in over 2.5 million feet of film. Damn. It took 65 people working on the film to edit it down, and post-production concluded in November 1981, more than two years after the start of filming. Paramount stated that the film cost $32 million, which is roughly $80 million today. Wow, that's not bad, though. That's like that's like low-ball movie these days, I as mean, far sure. as the studio picture. But um, 
I'll just tell you right now before we even get to it though, at the box office it made about forty million. Ooh. It's not a huge era no. era of yeah, that's true. profit. <laughs> it's a, it's a flop. Um did you ever hear about like the Kodak used to like bring a bottle of champagne or whatever, like a really nice bottle of champagne if you shot over a million feet to your production? I think no, they bring like multiple that. bottles, but like the whole idea is yeah. like you're celebrating. You haven't heard that? No, I haven't heard well, that. There's no sense of me going on because I don't have all the details. But yes, yeah, they basically every time you shot like if you shot a million feet, they would like show up on set. For a million feet? Yeah, and then like for, so you know, have like a Warren little Brady champagne got party. Two and a half bottles of champagne. Hold on, he got two. Because <laughs> they, they only show up every million feet. Okay. I mean, maybe he did. That's not that's insanity though. I mean, I don't know if that, like how true that is, but like I've just heard I've heard it discussed before and things. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, that's a lot of that's a lot of footage, just a lot of time. And he was nominated for best director for making something right. that was supposed to be fifteen to sixteen weeks or whatever a year. Yeah, that's true. It's like I don't think you managed this well. Actually, I don't know who voted on it. Like you know what I mean? Like other obscene like obscene directors who. Well, I feel like honestly, like actors who become directors usually do really well at the Academy Awards because in the voting body of the Academy, actors are the biggest union. And so I think that like actors are like, oh, they're one of us and they're a director and they're like achieving the ultimate dream of being the director. So we're going to vote for them. Gotcha. I think is part of that. Well, I mean, I would say like at the end of the day, no matter what we say about it, I think it was pretty well directed. Can you base that off the performances? Like... Yeah, I mean, so. I get what you're saying, but I also think that, like, he just hired really good actors. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, like, what did he have to do? I mean, yeah. Besides, like, annoy that's the shit out of him by uh, making him do, like, 80 takes. I mean, yeah, that's fair. Like, I don't think he gave, like, Jack Nicholson a piece of direction that, like, really... Changed something. Like, changes the <laughs> performance. But, you know, but you know what I mean. Like, it's just, like... He's, like, the weakest actor in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, like, a lot of this film is very strong, and I feel like that the, the, the director does get some credit for that. Sure. For obvious reasons. Yeah, no. I mean, I don't have a problem with him winning for Best Director, honestly. What do you have a problem with? I don't really have a problem with anything. Like, I went into Red's kind of being, like, not looking forward to because it's over three hours long. Yes, it is. Which is... An hour and a half more than any movie needs to be. <laughs> and um, this movie didn't change my mind that three hours is a reasonable amount of time for a movie. I'd say I was on board with it for like the first two hours and 15 minutes. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like I'm not hating Diane Keaton too much because usually I do. And um, it was fun. It was interesting. It was more of a love story than I thought it was going into it. Uh, and then it hits that like last 45 minutes and I was just like, this has to end. I can't handle this anymore. It's just way too long. And I think that the length kind of overshadows anything that's good about it. Because you just get like so tired of watching it. But I also think part of the reason that the, it felt so long. To, well, it is long. But the reason it like felt so, it was such like a slog to get through by the end. Is that it didn't exactly know what it wanted to be. Like I said, it kind of starts out as just this love story. And then I'd say, like, the last 45 minutes is basically all just, like, the communist uprising in Russia stuff. Yeah. And it gets, like, very political right at the end, which it hasn't. It's been, like, lightly political in the beginning, and then it gets, like, all political at the end. And I just feel like the tone, it was just, like, off because right. it didn't exactly. It didn't. John Reed, I feel like he wanted to tell his story, but also the majority of the story, I'd say, is from... uh Diane Keaton's character's point of view more than his. And then it like switches at some point to more his. Well, it's like, isn't it like based off a book she wrote or whatever? Is it? Don't, uh, don't call me. I didn't find that when I was looking at stuff. I don't know why I thought that. Ignore me. Okay. But because I think he, it's based somewhat off the book that he wrote that they talk about in the uh, movie 10 Days That Shook the World. Okay. Okay. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. 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 But, but you know, and I feel like the first like, our like a lot of it is told from her point of view and then it switches to his and yeah. i don't know it just was like all over the place kind of i feel like warren right. Beatty had a lot of ideas and just tried to like cram everything it, in there it, yeah it does it does feel like that for sure i can't really add much to what you're saying like i agree like i loved a lot of their their love story mm -hmm. I, thought, I thought it was honestly super solid i wasn't expecting it it's often like super humorous but i like the locations i liked the cast a lot 
I mean, Jack Nicholson is a standout for like obvious reasons, but he's only really primarily in like two to three scenes Mm -hmm. and he uh, slays them. So it's just, you know, it's always great to see him on on camera, but he's so good. I know. But uh, but yeah, overall, like again, like I like what you said, you know, is I think this communist was this communism tone was like, obviously it was throughout the entire movie. Like, sure, it was like sprinkled more lightly in the beginning. Man, but like everything was about the party in some way. So it's like, it's not that I don't think it goes from zero to 80. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But like that, when it gets to, I feel like the only reason he told a lot of the stuff that has in Russia was to have like the tragic ending, like the John Reed ending, mm-hmm. which like I get. Otherwise, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. But it was just like, that's when the movie lost its footing. Mm-hmm. It just didn't feel, it felt rushed. It felt. It felt like uh, the the movie decided to now like follow these characters less romantically and just kind of like set the camera up in a corner and let this scene happen. And it just yeah. it, it just lost its its flow. And I think some of the point too, because like he John Reed at least as presented in this movie had kind of like an idealistic idea of what communism was, and so I think part of the Russia stuff was supposed to show like how it was it fell apart in practice. But a lot of that is conveyed by just like really long scenes of a bunch of men yelling over each other for an extended period of time. Yeah. Which is not the most entertaining thing to watch <laughs> in a movie. No, no. And I do think, I do think that the movie suffered when they were separated for a long period of time. Cause yeah. I think the love story is the stronger aspect of the movie. And so once, once Diane Keen was gone for like half an hour of the movie, I was kind of just like, yeah. Okay. Right. Can we end now? And also, like, they say in the very beginning, he's, like, the first, um, like, first American. Well, they say only American, but that's true, to be buried in the Kremlin. So, like, obviously, you have to die in Russia to be buried at the Kremlin. Right. So, as soon as he was in Russia, I was just like, oh, he's going to die here. And I'm just, like, waiting for that to happen, you know? Yeah, yeah no, for sure. <sighs> but, yeah, Reds. I mean, that's that's all I have to say about it. It's not as bad as we, I don't think, we went in thinking. No, it's a well done movie. I would just say re-edit it and then talk to me. Yeah, I just really don't know if I'm a fan of uh, Warren Beatty as a filmmaker overall. I mean, yeah, it's been true. this and Bugsy. They've both been real life stories about people who just yeah. kind of fell apart in the That's end. true. That's true. You know, it was funny when we were watching this too, his relationship with uh like their relationship, I thought like mirrored so much the relationship in Bugsy too. Sure. It was like very volatile and very yeah. antagonistic. And I was just like, you're really drawn to this sort of relationship he, he dynamic. Likes, yeah. And, and two, um, I'm like really shocked that just sticking with this theme that he likes to do, but uh, I'm surprised he wasn't the first one to make a Howard Hughes movie. You know what I mean? To make a movie about Howard Hughes. That's so true. He kind of looks like Howard Hughes, Does, too. Doesn't it just feel like that's the kind of character he was, like, ultimately kind of striving for, like, in a way? That's so true. That's yeah. Dude, and he, like, literally does look like a young... Like, when he was young, obviously, yeah. he looks like a young... For sure. Howard Hughes. Well, Howard Hughes wishes, because no one's as good-looking as young Warren <laughs> Beatty, but, like... He just fell in love with a book about John Reed first, I guess. I guess. I mean, I would rather watch a movie about Howard Hughes. <laughs> I want to know just, like, a little bit more about why he chose to make this movie. Yeah. I don't have any facts about that. That would be an interesting fact to have, though. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 82% and a critic score of 92%. As far as its legacy, the American Film Institute's uh, on their 10 top 10, they ranked it as the number nine epic. Um, And like I said, the box office made 40.4 million, which is... Barely more than what it cost to make it. Yeah. And as far as its Oscar scorecard, it was nominated for 12 Oscars and won three. Wow. Mm-hmm. Not a great night. No. Although Warren Beatty won for Best Director, it's kind of a big deal. For sure. Let's change things up a bit. Okay. Talk about our next movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark by Steven Spielberg. Produced by Paramount. Hmm. Oh, the Paramount picture. Yeah, Paramount was doing good. So they made up their losses. They had the number one movie of the year. <laughs> and then some. <laughs> yeah. uh, in 1936, oh, this is the synopsis. In 1936, <laughs> for Arche- what? For Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, okay. In 1936, 
archaeologist and adventurer Indiana Jones is hired by the U.S. government to find the Ark of the Covenant before Adolf Hitler's Nazis can obtain its awesome powers. <laughs> it was written by Lawrence Kasdan from a story by George Lucas and Philip Kaufman. Lucas first wrote The Adventures of Indiana Smith in 1973 and saw it as a way to create a modern take on the serials of the 30s and 40s. He shelved the idea to work on some space story, but when his friend <laughs> Steven Spielberg expressed interest in directing a James Bond film, Lucas told him he had a character better than James Bond. Did you write that? No. Oh, I really like the way that's written. I wrote the space story part. Oh, good. The actual thing said Star Wars. <laughs> okay, good. That's my favorite part, obviously. All right. Uh, initially, the film was rejected by every major studio in Hollywood, mostly due to the $20 million budget and the deal Lucas was offering. Uh, eventually, Paramount agreed to finance the film with Lucas negotiating a five-picture deal. Assessing the film's legacy in 1997, Bernard Weinraub, film critic for the New York Times, which had initially reviewed the film as, quote, deliriously funny, ingenious, and stylish, maintained that, quote, the decline in the traditional family G-rated film for general audiences probably began with the appearance of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Whether by accident or design, found Weinraub, the filmmakers made a comic nonstop action film intended mostly for adults but also for children well said yeah why don't you why don't you start talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark why don't I start talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah because I've done a lot of talking so far and I need a drink of water (laughs) Raiders of the Lost you know what do you say really Um, it's our introduction to Indiana Jones played by the late great no I'm just kidding I was like what what happened? <laughs> no, but by the great Harrison Ford. Um, I mean, this is honestly quite a film because it's not only like an action adventure story, but it's an action adventure story uh, with really interesting adult characters. I, I do agree that it's like for adults, but like also kids. I think that's perfect because I, I love this when I was a kid, but I didn't get a lot of the jokes that you, you see now. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just this this excellent adventure story following like interesting characters beating up Nazis, which is like, what more could you ask for? But with like the directorial eye of Steven Spielberg, I mean, we've talked about him on this podcast before, arguably one of the greatest directors of our time. But why'd you look me that? I just don't know if we've talked about a Spielberg movie yet. Oh, well, we haven't, but we definitely talked about Spielberg. People know about Spielberg. We do. We all know about Spielberg. People heard about him. He's got a name to remember. Mm Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah, he just to what could have just been like romancing the stone, like action schlock, which I guess well, that movie wouldn't exist without this movie. But <laughs> like this was a, a really stylized achievement in, in movies like it's it's really great to watch. It has super interesting visuals like but it, that also just kind of play into. I think sometimes they play into the era that this is actually taking place like. It's like it's got some Hollywood imagery that you would see from like the 30s mm-hmm. when this movie's like taking place, although obviously made in the 80s. Um, it just does some things really, really well and really clever. And it's like it's awesome to again, like I, I mean, I'm not gonna talk again, it's an action adventure story where they have to get the Ark of the Covenant, which is like debatably real. Uh, <laughs> if it is real, it's debatable if yeah. that's the effect it has on right, 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 right. I mean, I don't know <laughs> if it melts faces, you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, from Nazis, like I'm not, there's no sense in really discussing the plot too much, but just the fact that again, it is this, it is just, this just like such well, such a well-made example of a great action movie is, you know, something to behold, like, mm-hmm. in there's no going wrong with Indiana Jones unless you, you see the fourth one, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know what else, Indiana, like Raised the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones is just an iconic it's an iconic movie, an iconic character. Um, I included the quote about like the from the New York Times critic just because I think that it does speak to the lasting legacy, the lasting impact that this film has had on movies today. Because I think like if we look at all the like Marvel movies, superhero movies in general, whatever, I think those are very much like a direct descendant of Raiders of the Lost Ark and that they're technically could be for kids, but are like much more geared for adults. And that sort of thing. And I feel like this was like the first step towards that of like getting adults interested in what is essentially like a comic book. Yeah. And adults and kids story. like all hate snakes. So, or should. Right. Those who don't are freaks. You know, most of those were actually legless lizards. Are you serious? Yeah. Because they weren't dangerous. 
but they look like snakes. Fair. Wow. I hate legless lizards. I can't even say that. I can't even say it. It doesn't have this. Why did it have to be legless lizards? <laughs> yeah. Um. Not they're like it's a species of lizards that don't have legs. I don't want you to think that they like took the legs off of lizards. It's like <laughs> I mean, no one thought that. Okay, I just wanted to make that clear though. <laughs> <laughs> and if you did, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? Come on. Uh, yeah. If you've not made it to see an Indiana Jones film yet, you're crazy. In fact, if you thought it was just for kids or whatever, oh, it's not. Like, I mean, it's it knows what it is, it's and it does it really, really well. It is. It's fun. It's and a fun it's movie. Great theme music. John Williams teaming up with Spielberg again. Dude. I mean, match made in heaven. Spielberg, Lucas, and John Williams. Let me tell you. Those are some rich men. Yes, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. John Williams also had a. Apparently, you said Superman two came out this year. Yep. He has a Superman theme too under his belt. Huh? So. Damn. Yeah, he rolling in it. So much money. Yes, but seriously, if you have not seen, if you have not seen an Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark was nominated for Best Picture, and like for a good reason. I think honestly, I think that's the reason it was nominated. Is like, it's an action movie. You don't typically see like non-war related action movies nominated for Best Picture. It's true. But it was done by this hot young director, and. Again, it has this like classic Hollywood feel to it. Like it really does. Mm-hmm. And so many of the things. Like it doesn't feel like an 80s movie. It doesn't feel an 80s no, movie it doesn't feel 80s. capturing the 1930s. It feels like a movie from the 1930s in glorious color starring Harrison Ford. I agree with like 99% of that. I have like a real problem with 80s movies that are like period but then, like, the women's hair always just looks so 80s. I'm like, that's not how people wore their freaking hair in 1940 oh, or whatever. Yeah. Like, but it's hard. You know, that's a hard thing, though. I know. I know. And I'm sure if I, like, go back, like, in 50 years, if we're watching movies from now that are period, we're going to be like, oh, their hair is so clearly yeah. 2010s or whatever. Well, there's, like, one woman in this movie. And yeah. <laughs> there's that, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doesn't pass the back. But I just so mean much. when you're doing like one period film out of ten, I know. you don't really change your hair too much, you know. Well, I mean, it has nothing to do with her hair; it has to do with how they style it. Like, oh, okay. And the '80s were just a very distinctive time for women's hair. Oh, for sure. But that's like that's that a, a complaint really I have pause. about all period movies, honestly. So. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like even if you watch something from like the '60s, their hair looks super '60s when it's supposed to be like eighteen, whatever, you know, whatever. Never noticed, but okay. Well, I notice it Moving up. all the time. <laughs> so, okay, Raiders Lost Ark, not nam- not nominated for Best Hair and Makeup. We get it. <laughs> or was it? I don't know. Let me no, see. no, I doubt it. Don't make me fill this time while you read. Ugh, so much pressure. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Devin. Devin. No, Devin. there was only two nominees for Makeup. Oh, wow. What were they? It was uh, An American Werewolf in Paris and... Oh, my God. <laughs> Heart beeps. <laughs> Who, I've who not won? heard of who won an American World of oh, London. Just heartbeat sort of shit. I already talked about this. this is, you see, you don't even listen when I'm telling you my fun facts. You saw you talked about heartbeats. No, I talked about an American World of London winning the first ever Best Makeup Oscar. Oh, you did in this episode? Yeah, literally like ten minutes ago, Kyle. <laughs> I mean, not ten. Okay. It's been a while. You had a lot of fun facts. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners remember. So Raiders of the Lost Ark has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 96% and a critic score of 95%. Um, the American Film Institute, on their original list of the 100 best films, ranked it at number 60. And 10 years later, on the anniversary list, they ranked it at number 66. On their list of 100 thrills, it's ranked at number 10. And Indiana Jones is ranked as the number two hero. And Raiders of the Lost Ark was included in the National Film Registry in 1999. It's also spawned three sequels so far, a TV series, and several video games. Okay. Cool. Uh, what? Uh, I was going to ask. Um, dang, what was I going to ask? Oh, what was the number one hero? Oh, I'm not. Oh, I think it's, mm, I think it might be Atticus Finch, but I'm not sure. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, at the box office, is made $389.9 million. Like we said, it was the number one movie of 1981 and adjusted for inflation and is the number 21 highest grossing film of all time. Awesome. Mm-hmm. At the Oscars, it was nominated eight times and won four. 
All right. Moving on to On Golden Pond by Mike Rydell, a universal picture. Synopsis. Norman is a curmudgeon with an estranged relationship with his daughter, Chelsea. At Golden Pond, he and his wife nevertheless agree to care for Billy, the son of Chelsea's new boyfriend, and a most unexpected relationship blooms. The screenplay by Ernest Thompson was adapted from his 1979 play of the same name. Jane Fonda purchased the rights of the play specifically for her father, uh, Henry Fonda, to play the role of Norman Thayer. The father-daughter rift depicted on screen closely paralleled the real-life relationship between the two Fondas. Jane Fonda recounted that the scene between Chelsea and Norman, where she tells him she wants to be his friend, mirrored uh, their real-life relationship. During one take, when the younger Fonda unexpectedly grabbed her father's hand, Henry Fonda started to cry and ducked his head away from the camera, embarrassed by his tears. And that take appears in the final film. Hepburn, who was 74 at the time of filming, performed all her own stunts, including a dive into the pond without a wetsuit. And the brown fedora worn by Henry Fonda belonged to Spencer Tracy and was given to Fonda by Catherine Hepburn on the first day of shooting. Fonda was overwhelmed by the gesture and painted a still-life watercolor of the three hats he wore in the film and gave the original to Hepburn as a gift. He had 200 copies made of the painting and sent one to every person who worked on the film. Each copy was numbered and personally signed by Henry Fonda, thanking each person by name. In her autobiography, Hepburn wrote that she gave the painting to screenwriter Ernest Thompson. After Fonda's death, she found the painting to be a sad reminder of him and Tracy. Leftover footage of Fonda and Hepburn driving around the New Hampshire countryside, as seen in the opening credits, was used for the opening of the 1982-1990 CBS sitcom New Heart. <laughs> I thought that was fun. That is a fun fact. Are there more? Nope. Okay. That's it. All right. So what did you think of our Golden Pond, Devin? I like it. I think, um, I mean, like, the story in general, it's like a sweet whatever story, you know? I think the only thing that, like, elevates this movie is the fact that Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn are in it. And Jane Fonda, too. But I think, like, the caliber of acting is really what elevates this movie from being some, like, afternoon special to being, like, a really memorable film. That's my feeling on it. <laughs> wow. I would say, like, I just, I mean, I don't know. I think that the story is is fine. I think the directing was not great. There were, I mean, there's just, like, a lot of, like, transition scenes that could just be, like, I don't know. It just felt, like, very 80s and very, like, schlocky to me. But I think Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn are, like, amazing. They have great chemistry together. And they're really good actors. Like, I know that sounds great. Like, I don't know if I'll say, like, Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn are good actors. Yes, they are. And they're still good, even when they're old. That's true. No, I mean, like, yeah, I was in all of their performances, honestly. It's the only thing that really made the film to me. I really loved the writing, but, like, I would rather... I think that, again, I think being based on a play, it'd almost be better to see the play, I think. Yeah, because I think it's definitely, like... That's just it. Every time they try to, like, force them into other... Um, places is kind of when it like felt weird because yeah. obviously the play like just takes place in one like in the cabin or whatever right so i'm like right and the, and the, it's so solid like everything is so solid in this cabin and then and if you're anytime you go anywhere else it's yeah it kind of slows brings mm-hmm. the movie to a halt in a big bad way yeah i don't know but dude henry fonda's really great in this yeah. movie well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Anything else you want to add to that? No, I just like right, he's so good. I mean, yeah, he is. I'm just he like is. happy for him. I do feel very much that this movie just felt like, man, old audiences must have loved it. Mm-hmm. Like, well, everyone must have loved it. It was the second highest grossing movie of the year. I mean, that's fair, but I, I really feel like it touches on a nerve that's not just like a good movie. I feel like it was relatable for people of that age, and I feel like it was relatable to like the people who had members in their family. Of right. I think age. like it definitely speaks to it to people who have parents. Yeah, there's a lot of like too. age jokes. You know, what I mean like are things that are played for humor that are just purely related to the age of the two main characters. And I think that that probably worked really well. And I mean, I don't personally I can't uh quantify like how many movies have addressed, you know, old age 
before mm-hmm. on Golden Pond, but I feel like not a lot. That's true. Right? Um, I know, like, personally, like, my grandparents, they go see, like, a Robert Redford movie where he, he's being an old person starring other old people. Like, they love it. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know what? Good. People like to see they themselves need to be represented, represented in yeah, movies. Exactly. <laughs> they need to, like, maybe not feel old for a second. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and that's why I think this movie probably worked so well. And was such a high grossing movie. But it, I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's okay. Yeah. Like, it, it's really nothing um, spectacular. Besides, again, watching some of the, you know, final great performances of Henry Fonda and uh, Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn. Mm-hmm. Who, by the way, still wearing pants. She was wearing pants. In the 1980s. Go Hepburn. You think she's going to suddenly start wearing dresses in 1980? <laughs> 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 she was pretty much. Showing off those those legs. Mm-hmm. Probably had varicose veins, but you know, you know that's that's part of growing up, you know. Why are you talking about Catherine Hepburn's varicose veins? <laughs> I don't know. I was just because we don't know what they look like. We don't know what her legs look like. I was just true. I'm reaching here, okay? I can see that. Yeah. Well, let me tell you. On Rotten Tomatoes, on Golden Pond has an audience score of 87 percent and a critic score of 92 percent. American Film Institute on their one list of 100 greatest passions, aka love stories, it's ranked at number 22. Its score was ranked at number 24. On their list of 100 cheers, it was ranked at number 45. And on the list of the 100 greatest quotes, it came in at number 88 with a quote, listen to me, mister, you're my knight in shining armor. Don't you forget it. You're going to get back on the horse, and I'm going to be right behind you, holding on tight, and away we're going to go, go, go. Which is read much better by Catherine Hepburn (laughs) than I just did. A little bit. But it's a good line. It was nice. Like, honestly, that line when she did it made me choke up a lot. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. For sure. Uh, at the box office, it made $119.3 million. Like we said, second highest grossing movie of the year. At the Oscars, it was nominated for 10 awards and won three. Mm. Including those two acting ones. Hey, what was the other one? I guess Wikipedia didn't have that one, huh? Why do you got to ask me things? It's writing okay. adapted screenplay adapted screenplay yes nice all right next, next time, movie say that into the mic all right <laughs> next movie you're not a rock star okay you were belting a big i'm line. like beyonce i just gotta hold it like <laughs> down my down at the floor okay atlantic city by louis Malle. that's probably not how you say it because i think he's french who knows I honestly don't know how to say his name. I, I, I think it's just Mal. Mal. Yeah. Louis Mal. That makes sense. Yeah. Because French people don't pronounce half the letters. No, words. they're just like <laughs> like meh. You eat meh. Synopsis: In a corrupt city, a small-time gangster and the estranged wife of a pot dealer find themselves thrown <laughs> together in an escapade of love, money, drugs, and danger. Wow. That makes that movie sound wow. like. I wouldn't want to watch it. Is what, that, is, <laughs> it is what that makes that movie sound like. I'll wait till you get through your fun facts. Okay. It was written by... There's so many French people I can't okay, What does it matter? Just, it was written by some people. Because the writers deserve credit, Kyle. That's true. It was written by John Gear, The <laughs> French and Canadian production companies allotted the director, the money to make a film with a stipulation that it be made before the year 1979 ended. Maul had a difficult time finding the right script to direct and with time ran out, his then girlfriend, Susan Sarandon, suggested using a story written by her friend, Sean Greer, a playwright most notable for his plays House of the Blue Leaves and Six Degrees of Separation. The writer suggested that the story take place in Atlantic City, which was still, for the most part, suffering from the urban deterioration that prompted the legalization of gambling as a solution to save the city. The three met over dinner in early 1979 to work out the quirks in the script and began shooting within a few months. And they finished shooting right up to the end, December 30th, 1979. Wow. Mm-hmm. So what took the movie so long to come out? Did it do like festivals or something? Just being I like- don't know. Did I don't know. Premiere in Europe the, first. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it just premiered in Canada. Or some, or yeah, first yeah, or something. yeah, I don't for know. sure. Um, Atlantic City is among forty-three films to be nominated in all Big Five Academy Award categories, and one of only eight among that group to not take home a single award. Damn. Just rough. Yeah. 
You, you, gotta, you have to announce when you're done, babe. I don't know. I'm waiting for more content. And then we have these long, awkward pauses. I think you know as soon as I sit back from the computer that I don't know anything else to read. <laughs> I don't know. These are called visual cues. Sometimes you can like, keep scrolling, but then you don't read anything. It's weird. because oh, I'm scrolling back up to the top. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Guys, this is the inner workings of our podcast. And our relationship. Yeah. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> anyway, Tell I thought what- Atlantic City was a gem. A gem. A gem. I did not know anything, anything about yeah. this movie um, going in. Uh, and I honestly, I thought it was superb. Mm-hmm. I really liked it. I liked it a lot. I don't know. This is an in-depth review. <laughs> yeah. It honestly felt like it could have been adapted from a play. Was it? No, it wasn't. It no, was it was written, written by, by a, play. a playwright, right. but it wasn't. But it felt like it could have, like, it felt like a good adaptation of a play. Like, to me, honestly. Um, I don't exactly know how they would have done that. Yeah. Perhaps a set with an apartment and then the one next to it or something. Oh, cool. I don't know. But like it that's what it did feel to me. It felt like the dialogue was so tight and sweet. The exposition wasn't overbearing and often like misleading. Like I thought there'd be some things that didn't I mean, were gonna happen, but not. They were just getting to know these characters. Mm-hmm. Um but Bert Lancaster, haven't seen him be bad Ever. a single time. No, he's great. Yes. He's been in so many of the week. We've we've already talked about him several times on this podcast, and we're only on season two. Right. Like, there's a reason for that. He keeps popping up and, and delivering great performances. Mm-hmm. Susan Sarandon killing it. One of the weirdest opening openings of movies, and I, I love a good opening or a good closing, and her uh, bathing in lemon, lemon <laughs> is, like, so weird and disturbingly sexy with, 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 with some creepy sprinkled on top of that. <laughs> I loved it. I was already in. I'm like, I don't know what this is about yet. Still don't know. Where does it take place? Have no idea. But <laughs> <laughs> but I'm in. No. Um. But then yeah, we introduce these characters, and it just feels like so fresh and different, and like kind of a slow build. You don't really know what it's really going for, and we don't really know what these characters are doing, and we lose some characters right away, and yeah. just like. It's it's really just well done. I never, I literally never knew what was going to happen next, and that felt really nice, especially in this like I'm sorry, kind of a dull year or year for us watching movies. Uh, mm-hmm. Not that like obviously Indiana Jones was great, Red was okay, but it's just like it wasn't. I don't know. Didn't feel I didn't feel the magic that we do in a lot of years. The years you know we hope for, yeah, kind of years we hope for. But Atlantic City, like again. It was like going in, it was maybe like, uh, well, you know, I've never heard of this movie. Can't be that great, right? Mm-hmm. But no, I mean, it goes to prove that some movies get buried. And this got buried under the weight of a classic like On Golden Pond, um, the action adventure of Indiana Jones. And again, I'll won by Chariots of Fire, which we will discuss next. But. I think it just got buried amongst other things kind of going on in the 80s. and uh, But it, it really is quite quite a fun movie and a really enjoyable watch. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's interesting, too, because, like, looking at the nominees in the 80s, and I think that there's definitely, like, trends of what type of movies get nominated for Best Picture. And, like, right now, you know, in 2018 or whatever, we're kind of in a trend where smaller movies get nominated more and more frequently. Yeah. And Atlantic city kind of feels like where I think in the eighties, a lot like reds is a sweeping movie. Raiders lost Ark is a big Epic movie. Chariots of fire, I guess is sweeping in its way. Like these are like big, like bigger movies were getting nominated for best picture. And I feel like Atlantic city is like this tiny little indie movie that somehow in 1982 managed to get nominated for best picture. Very much so. That's what it feels like. I think, I mean, like, exactly what you were saying. I didn't know anything about it. I'd never heard of it. But I'm like, oh, Susan Sarandon and Burt Lancaster. Like, how bad can it be? <laughs> Those are I mean, two that's very a fair, good actors. I, I honestly didn't know that Burt Lancaster was in it. Yeah. Like, I didn't even look that far into it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And he's very good. And I think that, and again, I feel like, you know, you're talking about on Golden Pond uh, speaks to older people's issues. But I feel like this movie does in a way, too, because he's this guy who, like, his whole persona is that he was someone and it's him dealing with the fact that he really wasn't ever anyone. Amen. Yeah. Or that like, you know, that it's or just like kind of what's, you know, the, sorry. Wow. I can't talk, but like the bathroom attendant, the old friend of his, yeah. who's now currently a bathroom attendant while he's got some luck, even though his life is nothing great. Right. He's got some luck and then projects this like great life mm-hmm. that he's had 
onto this bathroom attendant and like, oh, you know, your luck will come or whatever else. But he's just kind of showing off in a way. Right. He is it's very I much mean, about like. The it's They're living in the past. Exactly. The, 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 the best times were. The best times, times are always going to be when you were young. Right. Like, but it's, it's also just mainly because neither of them really had lives after that. Like, yeah. be it a love life, be it a career, whatever Him, else. I think that goes for the woman he worked for as well. Do you yeah. know what I mean? She was kind of li- obviously living in the past and like. No, they yeah, they all were. Like she, she was trying to do her own thing, and then but then like married a gangster, mm-hmm. but then he died young or went to jail or whatever it was. Yeah. And so like they just stayed stagnant and mm-hmm. and didn't do anything, and then are kind of living in this like, they feel like Vegas people, mm-hmm. but they're living in like Vegas's stepchild. And it wasn't you know even I mean? yet because there wasn't even gambling yet. Right. Phoenix. It was just like it was like just starting. Yeah. Yeah. It was like just starting up. So it was just like really interesting, especially watching this movie now. I mean, because we have these you know uh, preconceptions about Atlantic City, and it's just yeah, it's just kind of just like you guys are in the wrong place, you know. Mm-hmm. But then you root for them because you love them at the same time. Yeah. Like, I feel like empathy for him while also being like. Mm. No, I know. You know? But that's what makes a good character. Yeah, absolutely. Like, that's what makes a compelling story. Yeah. Like, I just, I don't know. The one complaint I had is, like, they kind of made Susan Sarandon a little crazy there for a minute. And, like, I, was, I wasn't all about that. For sure. Yeah, but I don't think they handled it in the best way. Like, I don't know. But that's just me. Uh, may I guess. Yeah. And I, I don't want to spoil anything because I do, I do feel like this is probably a movie that people haven't seen. And I definitely encourage people to watch it. Yeah. But I will just say, like, the ending, I really liked. Oh, yeah. So I think that they like I do I was, what you're saying. She kind of like there was a little bit in the middle where I was kind of like, uh, she's making choices. I don't like fully right. think are earned as a character. But um, at the end, I feel like it really came through with a really solid ending. I agree. And it's again, it's a, you just don't see the things coming like mm-hmm. you don't. It's just it's so weird and so not weird and like you like it's out of left field, but just like not obvious choices are made. And I don't know. It's just a really nice movie. Yeah. We recommend Atlantic City. Yeah. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 77% and a critic score of 100%. Wow. But I think it's only like 40-something reviews. It's not like... Sure, but it's... That's okay. a, a solid amount yeah. of reviews, but... Yep. Um, it was never been named to any notable list, although it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry in 2003. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome, though. That is cool. At the box office, it made $12.7 million. And like we said, it was nominated for five Oscars and one zero. Yeah. That's a shame. Yeah. That really is a shame. But I also see, like, because Burt Lancaster was nominated, but, like, against Henry Fonda. No, I know. Do you know what I mean? I know. I know. Like, its editing was on par. And I know what won for best editing. What won for best editing? No, I don't. I was thinking it was Chariots of Fire, but actually, I don't think it was. It's probably it's probably uh It was Raiders. Raiders, yeah. Never mind. That's also a very solidly edited movie, so <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> what are you gonna do? All right. Well let it let us now talk about the best picture winner from nineteen eighty two. Chariots of Fire by Hugh Hudson, produced by Warner Brothers. It was written by Colin Welland and based on true events. Although in my notes here, I wrote two events, but I know that I meant true. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Although the film does take some liberties with the events of the 1924 Olympics, including the events surrounding Liddell's refusal to race on Sunday. Um, in the film, he doesn't. What? Well, that was made up for like dramatic purposes? No. Just listen. Oh, okay. In the film, he doesn't learn about the 100 meter heat. Um, that's going to be held on Sunday until he is boarding the boat to Paris. In fact, the schedule was made public several months in advance. The decision to change races was even so made well before embarking to Paris and Liddell spent the intervening months training for the 400 meters, okay. an event in which he had previously excelled. Although it is true that his success at the 400 meters was largely unexpected, but it wasn't like he'd been training for the hundred meters. And then like he had yeah. two days to train for the four, like he'd been training for months for the 400. Yeah. Um, in reality, Eric Little also ran the 200-meter race in which Abrahams also ran and finished last. Uh, Liddell in that race finished third behind Paddock and Schultz, who are the two American runners. Yeah. 
This was the only time in reality that Liddell and Abrahams competed in the same race. While their meeting at the 1923 AAA championship in the film was fictitious, Liddell's record win in that race did spur Abrahams to train even harder. I am so pissed right now. I know. I am so upset. Although the film is a period piece set in the 1920s, the Academy Award-winning original soundtrack composed by uh, someone named Vangelis uses a modern 1980s electronic sound with a strong use of synthesizer and piano, among other instruments. This was a bold and significant departure from earlier period films, which employed sweeping orchestral instrumentals. The title theme of the film has become iconic and has been used in subsequent films and television shows during slow motion segments. That's true. Yeah. Like, when being the first time I saw this movie, hearing that music, it's like, oh, I've seen this used in like other montages. Yeah. I feel like, did I forget to read the synopsis for this movie, by the way? I feel like I did. You did. Uh, I thought it was intentional. Sorry. It's two British track athletes, one yeah. a determined Jew, and the other a devout Christian compete in the 1924 Olympics. Hmm. <sighs> sorry. You just, you mentioned that composer, and I was like, I know that name from something, and I can't figure it out. I mean, obviously, he's a working composer. Mm-hmm. But like what I recognize the, that name from is uh, Blade Runner. The new one or the old one? The old one. That's cool. Well, I'm sure it's got elements in the new one for sure. But yeah. Um, I mean, it's a good score. I will give it that. The score is good. Okay. And it won for best score. Good. Which I think is fine. That okay. was deserved. Yeah. The rest of it. <laughs> I uh, don't, I just don't understand. It's bullshit. This movie sucks. <sighs> like, I don't want to be like that. I feel like that's super stupid or like, to, I don't know. I don't want to be aggressive towards the movie, but like this movie is really bad. Yeah. And I, I don't understand how it got any of this credit that was awarded to it. And especially like after you reading that fact. I know, right? Like it just delegitimizes everything. Is that a word? Sure. Delegitimize? Illegitimate. Illegitimize. Illegitimize. That's not a word. Let's not go on about this. Okay. But, oh my god. Yeah. Like, I'm offended. The I mean, the biggest problem with this, like, okay, the like core things a movie or just like a story needs is like characters who have intentions and then obstacles that come in sure. the way of those intentions. Sort of conflict, yes. Conflict stakes yeah those are things that create not just good story but just story period yes this movie does not have that no it has they have intentions and obstacles but like the whole thing there's no stakes in this movie whatsoever like the whole thing is created as like this rivalry between these two runners and then they never run against each other in the olympics except apparently they they did did. in real life (laughs) And then the other characters, which are featured in the movie, the the the, the first and second place, who are featured characters the in the Americans, movie, yeah. we never see them run, like, you know, besides on the beach in a fucking opening montage. Oh, I guess he, he ran that thing around the, the, the square and the school or whatever. Oh, yeah, but the like, other guys? Dude, I absolutely agree with you. Like, And also, this movie opens up with, like, one character, and you think it's, like, going to be them telling the fucking story. Except no, that's the one time we ever hear a voiceover from this character, or he's like. No, he does a, a voiceover home. later too, when he's like right into his mom. Oh, does he? Yeah, because I think he's the only one that's like alive or something. Well, regardless, that doesn't it. even it's doesn't even matter. Okay. <laughs> it's like it's ridiculous, and then he talks about meeting this guy, and then the movie just totally switches to this guy's perspective for like a second before then switching across the fucking world, or not really, just no, like just to like Scotland. Just to Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> to uh to this other guy this little guy he's not little his name is little with some d's, d's. um <laughs> and then it was just like okay who's this guy and his weirdly but obsessed like, sister and like given like yes this is based on historic stuff but like even in the fucking 80s this happened 60 years prior so like forgive anybody for not knowing exactly what they're about to see okay right. but it is the most uninteresting story about running something that's already Boring. super uninteresting. Right. And there were no stakes. There was and then nothing. I feel like I feel like they like had ideas because they're like, oh, he's Christian and he's Jewish. And but that never played into anything. It sure didn't, Devin. Except for the Sunday thing. But like Yeah. Wh- I don't run uh, on the Sabbath. Cool, bro. Like 
And then they never. It but was that just wasn't like, even a conflict thing. No, it wasn't even like. It wasn't a. Con- it was like a problem for like a second, and then another guy was like, "Oh, he can just run my race," and everyone was like, "Cool." That was great. nice of you. Excellent. Excellent. Radio chap, and they're also nice. They're just like perfect. No one's mean. Is there one like mean scene? The two dudes from Cambridge are like slightly anti-Semitic, but like behind oh, closed doors, never yeah, to his face. In the beginning. And then like even after he like is on the Olympic team oh, okay, and stuff. Okay. They're just kind of like, what? A Jew is oh, wow. good at things? But he sure overcame them. He didn't even know. I mean, whatever. Okay, it's fine. I'm just saying they didn't ever say it to his face. But like... Yeah. But we had to see it for some reason. Yeah. I guess to like show us the, the opposition he was up against. Yeah. If you want to yeah. write a movie about running in the Olympics and about overcoming obstacles and like your diversity being a problem, then you make a goddamn movie about Jesse Owens. Like... You don't make this movie. You just stole my line, dude. I know, but it's true. I know it's true. I said it. <laughs> that makes it true. I said it into a microphone, so you now did. it's my you're on, you're original right. thought. Yeah. <laughs> At least you're putting some original thoughts in this podcast. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I absolutely agree. Like, m- my dad told me hours before watching this movie that this is the one movie he ever walked out of. And, like, I thought, like, my dad does not have the best taste in movies. Like, he's just, like, being dramatic. Like, if Devin would allow me to stop things, I would have. But she doesn't. I like to finish things. It's annoying. (laughs) My mom told me that when she saw it, she was like, I couldn't keep everyone apart. She's like, they were all, like, white British guys. And she's like, I didn't know who was who for, like, all the movies. I mean, I could see that. I didn't have that problem, but like, I, I kind could of had that problem. It. The one like rich dude running guy kind of looked the same as the American oh, guy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was but like, the American guy wasn't introduced until the very end. I know, but I kept thinking it was him. Then I was like, oh no, he's got a American Because they both flag looked super cool. Yeah, <laughs> like, they both had like '80s hair. <laughs> yeah, again, see, I'm telling you. But this is problem. like this is bad. And if this was like the epitome of British cinema, like gag me. Like that is terrible. I know. And it was so British, too, in that, like, no one showed emotion. It was all, like, stiff off her lip bullshit. But I'm like, that's not interesting to watch. They're all just like, oh, I'm just going to be reserved and quiet and take yeah. this. Like, a, like cool. You're all gentlemen. Great. Fun. What a fun way to spend my evening watching you do this. Yeah. I don't understand how this movie won. I would literally not recommend this movie to my enemies. It's I a want, great book. I want quote. no one to see this. I would this not movie. recommend this movie to my. Head. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <coughs> yeah, no, it's bad. It's bad. I feel bad. I don't want to call movies bad, but the shoe fits. Uh. What other people think about it? It has a Rotten Tomato audience score of 80% and a critic score of 83%. I feel still seems too high. I feel feel like, am I stupid? I want to hear someone defend this movie. I've never talked to anyone who liked it. (coughs) But I've not talked to that many people who have seen it either. It's mostly like my parents. Yeah. So guys, listeners, if you love Chariots of Fire, tell us what we missed. And we'll tell you how you're wrong. Uh, wow, I did a really horrible job filling this one out. Okay. Uh, Legacy on the American Film Institute's list of 100 cheers. It's ranked at number 100. Just made that list. Just made that list. And on the British Film Institute's oh, list one. of 100 greatest British films, it's at number 19. Okay. And let me tell you, I looked at this list of British films. Not heard of like 80% of those. Well, movies. that's fair. Though. That's fair. <laughs> I not certainly s- it's not to say they're not good. No, just, I know. I'm just yeah. saying. I was like, I was like, oh, I wonder what else is on here. And then yeah. I was like, oh, nothing. We don't import a lot of British movies. Or, like, didn't no. didn't in the past a lot. They have like a bunch of like, well, like a bunch of David Lean movies are on there. Sure. And then they have like early Hitchcock stuff before he came to yeah Hollywood. Uh, anyway, Chariots of Fire. It was nominated for seven Oscars and won four. Wow, too winning bad. record there too, compared to the other movies you named. Right. So, yeah, that was uh, 54th Academy Awards. Uh, Like we were saying, this is not the best year for film. I do think, like, overall this was, like, a weak year for film. Yeah, it was. But it's time to ask the question that everyone knows the answer to. Kyle, did the Academy get it right this year? They sure didn't, Devin. Mm -mm. 
I agree. They sure didn't. Chariots of Fire is a dud. Yeah. So what do you think should have won Best Picture? What do I think should have won for Best Picture? Probably should have put a little bit more thought into this. It's like literally the whole point of our podcast. I know. Hmm. 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 I want to say Atlantic City. Mm-hmm. But I really, I th- I think it goes to I think it goes to Raiders. I agree. I think that one, if you're looking at like what film has had the most lasting impact on film, I think Raiders, mm-hmm. like far and away, has had the most cultural impact and the most impact on other filmmakers. Uh, so yeah, I would say Raiders. It's, Nothing else is really close to me. It's such a movie, movie. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, do you know what I mean? Sure. Explain to me what you mean. It's just a movie movie. Great. Good explanation like by repeating great what you said. Mo- it's a great movie about movies. And I think... Is it about movies? I mean, again, I think with like some of the, the style choices that Spielberg brought to it. Okay. Again, with like kind of elements of that era. Some filmmaking elements of that era. I just think it was like such a nice nod to, I guess, like that kind of era of movies. Which we've, we've watched some. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean... I just think that overall, although I just, I really, I really want to check out Atlantic City again. Yeah, for sure. I really like Atlantic City. <clears throat> but again, also if I'm like, oh, what movie am I most likely to watch again? Probably Raiders of the Lost Ark. For sure. So yeah, Raiders should have won. Chariots of Fire should not be watched by anyone. And those are our thoughts. And that's our show. Uh, like we were saying, this was not the strongest year for film. And for that reason, we will not have a supplemental episode for, uh, for 1981 slash 82. So, sorry. (laughs) We were, if we'd done it, we might have watched Evil Dead or Body Heat, which, again, aren't movies that were ever going to be nominated for Best Picture. (laughs) So, (laughs) seems like a fruitless exercise. (laughs) Uh, So, we will be back next week uh, with a regular episode talking about the 2002 Academy Awards, honoring the best films from 2001. Uh, So, we'll see you then. We came in listening, as always, to the winner for best song, which was Arthur's theme from, do you want to guess? Arthur. And sure, whatever. That's fine. It's a great song. Um, But let's go out just to switch it up, listening to the Academy Award winning score from Chariots of Fire. No, that's not what we're doing. No? Nope. Why? Because we're going to choose the movie we thought should win, and it's going to be the theme song from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Fine. (laughs) that's fair so scratch that we're gonna go out listening to the score from writers of the lost ark john williams forever sure gonna get that tattooed on you yeah i like that where should i put it (laughs) (laughs) all right bye